Rage with John Bowd on www.tracksfm.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to All the Rage. As ever, we are broadcasting to you via Tracks FM, the one, the only, the original pirates. And a little bit of self-promotion here. If you're interested in the pirate radio thing, please go and listen to our recent show where we spoke to two of the original pirates from back in the day, uh, Lindsay and uh, our very own Dave RB. So go and check that out. Anyway, this week I also am honoured with another guest, uh, a true friend of the show, a true comrade in arms. And I mean it too, by the way, for any of you out there who who think, you know, for any of you middle-class wankers who use that word as a punchline, some of us actually use it as a way of life. And I, and I mean that. So um, stop stop using our word. Stop messing with our culture. Anyway, Carlos Barros, how are you, mate? I'm good, mate. How are you? I am not too bad. I'm not too bad. And uh, it's good to see you. Let's talk about uh, a certain trade union win that you've had. Well, actually, no, a couple of wins. So one campaign and one actual trade union deal that the RMT got a little while mm. ago. Now, we're a little late to the party with catching up on this, because um, obviously you've been busy, and you've had to, to put this deal into some kind of practical usage, so we had to take time to see what it would turn out as. So many people here in Britain, perhaps international listeners, might have followed this too, but they would know that it's been a long-running dispute between both uh, the Aslef Union and also the RMT Union, Transport for London. Is that right? Is it, is it the dispute with Transport for London and also like all over the country? Yeah. It, it is. So the pay one on the underground was four trade unions and TFL. And uh, recently, however, there's been a, a beneficial little breakthrough, if I'm not mistaken. So take us through that and, and what it all means. Our negotiations on pay are every April. Uh, that's the anniversary date and all the rest of it. So... We we put we put ahead our um our demands. The company then come back and say, Well, we've got no money, as they usually do. This went back and forth most of last year. So this deal that we're talking about is last year's deal. So there was negotiations going on, bits and pieces, all the rest of it. Um, in the meantime, we only got to the party when we're talking about a ballot very late last year, October, November time. Uh, in the meantime, Aslif uh, accepted 5%. The other two trade unions, TSSA and Unite, they were still on the fence. Unite said they're not happy with the 4%, the 5%, sorry. Um, And then, you know, so so it kind of broke down a little bit. So what we did in the RMT, as we normally do, is we uh, focused their minds by putting on a little bit of strike action. And uh, that strike action... Yeah, well, it it did this time, I I, I can tell you. So what we did is... um, I've had this, I think I've spoken about this on on your show before, where I, I wanted to explore different grades going out at different times and maximising the amount of time you can go out and strike for. So we had that plan last year. We didn't use it because we got a result and uh, and we, we put it back on the table this year. So the company were adamant there was no money. Um, and, and actual fact, as it turns out, that they were probably correct that they had no money. Boris Johnson sold our subsidy um, when he was mayor of London and um, and we're about, about £800 million a year shy of what we should have based on the money we generate for London. So we put a strike action on. Uh, it started with some engineers on the Friday and then it was going for the following week. The engineers took the strike action on a Friday and then there was a flurry of phone calls between our general secretary and the mayor's office. And then on Sunday, the national executive, which I sit on, um, who are the ones that can only put on and take off strike action, got summoned to a meeting and got told that not TFL, but the mayor's office have found 30 million quid behind, at the back of the sofa. And and would that be sufficient for you to suspend the week's action? They also said, which was a, a bizarre thing for me, but it was because of the timeframes. They also said, it's pretty much up to you how you spend it. 
which is unheard of, really. So we say that is a very large sofa, and so it's something we couldn't really turn down. You know, we we, we kept the mandate forward. We haven't dealt anything. And and you saying we've been a bit uh, behind in catching up with this. It's only really yesterday that this pay deal was uh, was all sorted out because we were waiting on the other free trade unions to accept it as well. And that only just happened yesterday. So this is hot off the press now. That pay deal has now been sorted out. What we've been able to achieve with a 30 million is an underpin for the lowest paid. Uh, so they're getting in the region of about 8%, which is not normal. Uh, in this current uh, state of affairs, the Midland people will get from between uh, six and seven percent. There is talk about a privileged discount ticket on National Rail. There's talk about um, salary sacrifice for electric vehicles and, and other bits and pieces that made it uh, a far more palatable deal than the standard just flat five percent. So um, we don't really have to accept it on paper officially and all that, but we have. And so we were waiting on the other three unions. They've done that this week. So th- th- it's going to get into the pockets of the members probably. There was there was talk about an issue over tax in the tax year. So they'll, they'll get it in May and that will be backdated to April last year. So it was a, a, a good day in the office, that one. Yes, a nice little bit of, uh, of union success. Mm. And a strike, a, a, a plus tick in the box for the Mayor of London because you know, let's give him, give him credit when he does something, we give him plenty of grief when he does something wrong, which understandably we should, we should do that to all of our elected politicians, but also you know, nod when, when something's right uh, obviously the management of TfL were uh, useless always have been so therefore you needed somebody to come in and actually take the initiative and thankfully somebody did I was going to say, give the control over to the people where you should have it, which is the unionised workforce, because that's what we are. You know, we are the represent. We are literally the workers' representatives, made up of the workers and the people who can tell you how best these things can be distributed. Because who who else would you listen to? You know. Well, this this is it. I mean, I, I've I've no doubts he's not a Marxist, but um, no. he, um, I, I tell you what he did do as well, and and it's a it's something I've been speaking to members about because sometimes you have to really uh, explain to people why it's such a good victory because it's not just the increase in a in a percentage. Um, the mayor, when challenged, obviously uh, London's going through mayoral elections at the moment, so everyone was ready. He he, he couldn't win. The whole thing. If the strikes went ahead, he'd get slaughtered. If he did a deal, he'd get slaughtered, which he did. But what he did was very interesting. What he said was, this is how you negotiate. This is how you deal with trade unions. And this is how you resolve things. And he, and he pointed towards the government saying, you could do this with the national rail. You could do this with the doctors. You could do this with the nurses and the teachers. And we wouldn't have this whole problem in the country. So it's quite interesting. And, and it's something that other trade unionists have said to us that it's really helpful that, that he, he set his stall out there and he did it because we had the strikes on the tube. So, you know, mm. I, I don't know about credit, but it, it, it was very beneficial to us what he said. I mean, it's, it's funny. We are sort of getting this this um, this mix now of places where, you know, some political leaders can be. I say good on some things, not good on others, but I think pressure is actually the vital issue here. Absolutely. It is pressure from people. And we've had some very, very good examples of that recently, especially. It is pressure from uh, united groups in one form or another, which gets you what you want. None of these people want to give us anything. No, that's, that's not their job. Uh, they don't want They don't want us to to gain anything whatsoever from from just, you know, basically running the country, which we do. Uh, so you have to push them in a position where they have no choice other than to give us what we 
owed uh, to give us what you know the the spoils of what we have built. And uh, as Dave likes to say, whenever he's on this show, you know, you can uh, you know call this Marxism if you want to and communism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, don't really care. I'm just telling you as it is. And he's right. I go further and say more than happy for you to call me a Marxist because I wear the T-shirt. But nevertheless, call it whatever names you want to. That's not the point. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but like, uh, the, one of the ways I see this is, is someone on the lowest paid scale who you were talking about within London Transport, uh, someone who may be just coming into that business now, has got the opportunity to start constructing a life for themselves, has got yeah. the opportunity to, for instance, get themselves a mortgage, which you know are not going to get when you work zero hours. No one's mm. ever going to give you that. That's part of the reason for the housing crisis. One is not enough actual housing that people can live in uh, or afford. And the other is the fact that you're never going to get that money because no one's mm. going to lend it to you if you ride a bike around for £3.20 per you know per job or whatever. Yeah, now that you actually have the opportunity to start building a life. This, is, this stuff is fundamental, folks. I mean, it really is. And this is the first time we've been able to put in a lower underpin on the underground. So what you get is if there's 5% flat rate, then that gap at the bottom just gets bigger. And so, you know, we, we were always trying to, to, to shrink the gap at the bottom. And to be fair, obviously, by putting an underpin, people on higher wages are sacrificing a small, minute percentage to to the, uh, the the lower paid. And I'm, and I'm very proud to say that there was absolutely no resistance to that whatsoever that RMT members are very, very clear that we look after our own and we look after the poorest workers in our workforce, you know? So I, I was very proud of that. Ultimately, oh. the, the, the thing with the dispute itself, I mean, for me, uh, being very, uh, it might be the Galician in me, it's all very, you know, it's very clear, is um, I wanted to give them uh, just a very simple financial equation. This is how much London shut down for a week is going to cost you. How much are you willing to spend on it? It's as simple as that. I don't think, because they tell us quite often when we go on strike for a day that we cost the wider London economy like 70 million quid or, you know, a day, right? So if you're talking about shutting it for seven days, then then that's a lot of bunts and 30 million works out quite a good deal, actually. And that's what I kind of wanted to get to because money talks on it sometimes. It does. And again, uh, you with those sort of numbers and those sort of facts behind the numbers, uh, you'd think the powers that be had better appreciation of the workers, really, because it doesn't, it never has to get this far. It's put mm. this far by, none of us are actually sort of danced up and down going, yippee, let's go on strike. It's not what we want to do, but it's what we're willing to do in order to get what we need, because obviously it works as you've proven here. But, you know, you, you would think that you, it doesn't ever have to actually get to that point. And this is a part that drives me spare, you know, that, that people just don't. And that I want to spend some of the powers that be. It's very, it's very 1980s, me saying that. But I mean, you get the idea. Yeah, people, people, you know, making the decisions. It's like, well, just A, make better decisions and B, make them sooner. This being a great example of where we got to. And this conflict took, you know, what, a year or something? It's like, well, mm. that's on you. Why didn't you going to come to this agreement anyway? Why didn't you just come to the agreement sooner? You know, so I'm sorry, someone should lose the job for this. You should get your ass yeah, kicked yeah. for this. No, yeah, I agree, I agree. I mean, it's, it's a wider it's a wider discussion, isn't it? If if people if they dealt with this in a timely fashion, if they were fair with workers on the ground, you wouldn't need trade oh. unions. You wouldn't need them. Workers would just organise and say, right, no, all right, we're happy here. Bosses are fair. Uh, we know the rules, this, that, and the other. Unfortunately, that's why there's so many of us nutters because we can see that they don't care. They don't, they just see you as a money maker. They'd be very happy for you as soon as you 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 stop working that you just pop down dead and you know, they give you nothing more to live on for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? That's that's, that's how they do exactly. it. Exactly. 
we've always known this anyway, but this isn't just, you know, uh, the, the rhetoric of a, a couple of tub thumping aging trade unionists. Look around you and see the, the level of callousness to humanity that we're seeing displayed by power right now is breathtaking for many people. Uh, it really is a wake-up call in, in a very real sense. Again, a bit of a cliché term, but I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, as, as I've asked this the, the other day. Interestingly, I was having a, a conversation with a, a young fella who's just about, I think, about to complete his third year studying economics. And I said to him, so I'm always intrigued by this. I know I've, I've got my opinions on this, but, you know, you've just been studying the subject, so give me your take on this. What is the actual economy Britain, what is it? Because we used to manufacture things. Oh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not getting misty-eyed, folks. I'm just. I'm just laying it out. There used to be manufacturing based in this country, right? And and we took it apart because it was beneficial to certain groups of people to do that and to weaken workers. Then we had the kind of like the service industry was quite big during the Blair years and and the tail end of that. So, so what does it actually do? Because I've always got the concept the concept that basically the the biggest you know economic. Um, structure, I suppose, would be for a better word in this country, is uh, the city of London laundering people's money, uh, very rich people's money. He basically said, yeah, that's about what we do. And, and this is a kid, he's not coming from the same political position I am, per se. Although I think he's getting there now, he's been studying economics. But he's just going, uh, yeah, he goes, that's exactly it. He goes, I said, don't do anything, we're not making anything. So you're talking about a country that is shockingly on the downside, and workers are getting nothing, and we've got this ridiculous level of worker hatred and self-hatred to a degree but we'll, maybe we'll come back and talk about that in a bit but you know uh, this this hatred towards the people who actually generate anything that you have and keep the country literally running keep what's left of the structures of this country running you know but i mean you having you got the nurses to go out on strike at the first time in about over a hundred years mm. right and they're still fighting that one and these people, they, honestly, like I've just said, they do not care. They don't care if you've got a roof over your head. They don't care if you are healthy. You know, if you're sick, don't go sick. That's, you know, it will, it will cost us something. Don't go sick. If you've, you know, got a disability, don't have one. Uh, if you've, if you've got any kind of, and we'll come to talking about that because part of the, uh, the ticket office, uh, campaign we'll mm. talk about in a sec. You know, and if you've got any of these sort of problems, yeah, yeah, just don't have any, any of these kind of problems at all. And if you are, um, I don't know. Cause is it possible you could just cease to exist because you're not helping my profit? As that economist has said, look, like our, our economy is based on intangible things. <laughs> They're out there in the ether and no one knows where they are or what they do. And then when you get to stages where transport workers get someone from A to B, postal workers get a letter from A to B, teachers get kids from A to B, right, to a certain level. Nurses and doctors get people from A, being poorly, to B, being well. It's tangible. A new kidney, right? That's tangible. They don't want any of that. They want this intangible because then you can hide things. You don't need to worry about that. No one worries about that because it's not there. You can't do that with someone with their arm falling off. Well, I think also I've made this argument for, God knows, 100 years or something, but it feels like that. But there are things in life that not only do they should they not be profit motivated, they don't require a profit. And again, I would come back to saying, when you focus every single thing on profit in this country, look at the state of our economy. It's not actually working. It's not going anywhere. It's not benefiting. So, yeah, um, the, the the lighter end of that, I suppose, is, is you know, postal and stuff. But the heavier end of that is is transport and healthcare. You don't want the disease industry they have in America. No, but, but equally, even when there is an element, because the transport sector creates massive profit, profit for people, and they just can't help themselves but to asset strip more. 
it's that greed that absolutely drives them forward. Because like I say, during the pandemic, the train operating companies pulled 500 million quid out of, out of the railway services, even when no one was really running on them. And yet they still what they did come... Is roll them out. Exactly. And then what did they do? They then said, right, we're going to have to make cutbacks and we're going to have to do this and we're going to have to do that because our profits aren't enough. You know, it, 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 you wouldn't win Monopoly playing that way. Put it that way. No, exactly. And again, it comes back to ideology. Again, people who uh, accuse the likes of us of being ideologically driven. I put my hand up and say, you're fucking right, I'm ideologically driven because my ideology is people over profit and I'm happy to be Mm. driven by it. But the other folks we're talking about now are completely ideologically driven. That's why you're doing asset stripping when it doesn't actually make any sense to do asset stripping because that's your ideology. And the fact is that the ideology that we talk about here at the moment, whatever names you want to give it, whatever it's parts of its history you want to talk about, you know, if, if when I'm standing on a picket line, you want to start talking to me about Lenin, I can't tell if you're one of those SWP types or from the other side, but they're the only people who ever want to talk to me about Lenin in 2024, <laughs> you muppet. So, you know, no one cares. Yeah, you've, yeah. I can I mean, tell. You've been there. You remember. Uh, but, but also the... And I don't get involved in them conversations. Ultimately, um, there is an element of knowing your history and knowing all the the theory and this, that and the other. But we're in it. We ain't got time to theorise. We're in it. I agree (laughs) entirely, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When you are self-organising, there's no point in walking up to someone, you know, you're like, you're organising the kitchen or whatever and you go, um, oh, have you read uh, Kapropkin and and, and the pattern? You go, no, I'm doing it. The fact of the matter is, uh, for the vast majority of people, especially the vast majority of workers, our ideology right now is the one that makes sense. That's what drove the wave over the last two years. Yeah, truly exactly. That's what's driving. Yeah, mm. it's driving this, you know, trade union membership is up. It's nowhere near up enough. Don't get me wrong. Mm. We're not, you know, we're not the numbers we should be at, but we're getting there, folks. It's, and it's, it's a great thing to see. So I want to have a little rant about our beloved mm. city and the way mm. that some people have been characterising it and, uh, and have been using uh, the, the, the mayor in particular Again, not someone I have a great deal of love for. Uh, he's, mm. he's not stemmed the tide of, of insane gentrification of this city, so none of us can afford to live here anymore. But, you know, uh, you, you, you folks really need to get off of that anti-brown face Islamophobic attacks on the case. Attack him for his, him or anyone else for their actual record, if you want to, and not that. And uh, I know I, this is apropos, not exactly of what we've just been talking about, but I might as well include it. But here you are, a couple of, you're listening to a couple of, internationalist trade unionists either by their politics or their background or you know or otherwise or all of those things that is that kind of internationalism it's that kind of ethnic diversity that makes this city the wonderful place that it is and i do believe that it's got its problems everywhere it does but most of them are for the economic powers above us you know so class interest is very important here but nevertheless ideally love this city i will uh, i will go to bat for it at any particular time and for any of you online you know pushing pictures around the place of somebody in a headscarf and screaming about it with with union jack in your bio if you don't like london fuck off Oh, funny enough, I, I've just come, I was at uh, the Portuguese TUC conference uh, just last week uh, in Lisbon. And I, I'll tell you, that exact uh, sentiment that you've just given about London is exactly what trade unionists are saying about Lisbon. And it's the same rhetoric. Uh, it's the immigrants' fault. That's why we ain't got any money. And this, that, and the other. And they're going to elections um, in March. And there is a big possibility that a right wing government will get in. 
using the same daft tactics that they use across the world, like they did in Argentina, like they did in, in Bolsonaro's time and all the rest of it. So one of the things, you know, you, you saying we're both internationalists, uh, international trade unionists looking, looking outwards and inwards uh, uh, globally. I've got to say, just them, the bosses that we were just talking about two minutes ago that, that attack us, the way they attack us, they're meeting regularly, globally. <laughs> and they're using exactly the same tactics, both in polit- politics and in business, to fuck us over, to fuck the working class over, right? We're battery chickens to them, is all we are. And they are working and working and working. And something we've got to be better at as a movement, as a class, is like understanding that and organising, not, not just locally in your workplace, but taking that out elsewhere and across the world. Because I'll tell you now, most, most trade unionists have got family in another country somewhere. And they are, I bet they never talk about trade unionism. Everything we do comes down to that. Um, yep. Yeah, can't can't disagree. Okay, let's talk about ticket offices, shall we? So, <laughs> let's again a uh, quick bit of background for the listeners, both local and national, and even international. As you didn't know, the ticket office closures. There was national plan to shut down ticket offices. So, what this basically meant was the offices where you had members of staff who you could talk to, uh, get a ticket from, who could give you help getting to and but I've actually got a very recent example of somebody needing help on a train station that I was on but I'll, I'll come back to that in mm-hmm. in a minute they were going to shut these offices now one of, there's many things these offices do one of the ones which got highlighted well two and no two actually two great examples one is how important that kind of first-hand contact is for people with disabilities and the other was the fact that the machines, I mean, putting aside any of the other problems that younger folks even like me have with their young, fit and virile and beautiful people like me even have with those ticket machines because they're a pain in the ass, is the fact that you tended not to get the the cheapest or, or most efficient fare you could get because the machines do not direct you in the direction of doing that as opposed to the fellow in the in the uniform or, or lady in the uniform, excuse me, who can come over and go, uh, no, mate, tap that one, that one, there you go, you've just saved yourself 25 quid. So that's a couple of the elements of, of why it was so important to have sorry, ticket office staff, et cetera, people who can help you out. And this campaign was successful. So we've actually, again, something else we've done where we've been successful. So take it away, my good man. Tell us all about how people yeah. how are united to save jobs, to save benefits for everyday folk, and to spit in the face of our psychotic masters. So as I was saying, train operating companies, there's 15 of them that run as private entities nationally, right? Uh, so, so private that there's a whole scandal of how these companies that exist, Roscoe's they call them, rolling stock uh, companies, they just lease just the train. They don't maintain them, they don't do anything like that. It's a whole big scam, right? But anyway... 2021, late 2021, they said, right, we need to, the 15 companies got together and said, right, via a, a, a group that they created to save us having to do 15 different negotiations called the Rail Delivery Group, headed up by one of the train operating company's owners, so not a working class lad from up the road. And what they said is we need, tra- we need train reform nationally. And we said, we're not, we're not having that. Um, we went into dispute and we went into dispute on a very basic document that they had that included ticket office closures, but included a whole raft of things. Roll on the RMT's yearly AGM in uh, Bournemouth. And while we were there, the week we were there, the rail delivery group announced we are closing every single ticket office in the country. That timing can't have been by mistake. Judge that one pretty badly because where we were in our AGM, we had 70 different reps from all the different parts of the country and we all got together and planned. 
And so um, because it was such a big change to the railway, the government has to put it out for public consultation. So what you then saw is uh, a period of four months of intense campaigning. And what we did for the first time ever is we actively told people to engage with this public consultation. So we created postcards that you could send to your MP, QR codes that you could do it electronically. Now, if you went out and around during that period of consultation, the companies were told they had to prominently put a poster up in every station. For them, prominently was the behind cubicle number two in the ladies' toilets, right? So what we did is we, we, we bypassed that and we, we got people to directly go to the government web webpage. What it resulted in is the biggest number of people participating in any public consultation in the history of the UK. So it was about a million people, um, all of them pretty much saying, we don't want you to touch them. Now, there's a couple of things that we based it on, and I, I, we did a lot of work and lots of trade union uh, trade unionists helped us, is just on the points you were saying, Jonathan, right? So there is also the, the ticket offices, um, ticket machines. Not only won't they not direct you to the cheaper si- the tickets, a lot of them are not allowed to show them. They're, they're not programmed, right? A split fare, for example, means if you paid a cheap fare from here to Reading and then from Reading onwards, if you get a separate ticket, it can be, you know, 30% cheaper. The ticket machine cannot physically do that. And you can't physically buy a ticket from Reading to wherever if you're starting in Paddington. You just can't do it. And also the apps, because I was speaking to a lot of young people and they were going, well, that don't bother me. I'm not, I'm not uh, disabled. I haven't got learning difficulties. I haven't got mobility difficulties. I'm all right. I said, well, do, do you use what? What do you use? A train line? Yeah, yeah, I use a train line. Yeah. All right. Well, that algorithm is designed to put at least 10% on that fare. At least. It can go up to God knows how much. So even the people that thought they were all right, Jack, actually weren't. And so a lot of them were saying, oh, well, I'll have some of that. It gives one of them postcards in. And that's what it resulted in. Just completely out of the blue, October, the government announced we're closing no ticket offices. So it was a very happy day in Unity House up in the RMT's head office because we were like, bloody hell, we didn't expect that. We thought they'd, you know, slowly slice it and this, that and the other. And they just haven't. And what we've done is we've built on that. We now have had our pay all sorted out on the back of the ticket offices. Um, and then, so the next big date is May, May the 1st. A nice day to start off another uh, issue, May the first. But, um, Very poetic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the fifteen different companies are going into individual negotiations to try and bring in some of these modernisations, which we're we're pretty much against all of them. So that, that's where we are in a nutshell. Uh, we might be back on the cobbles after May, but um, that's where we are now. So, it's a good, good win that one. Yeah, well, obviously, we've always got to watch out for these little bastards to to come back and do the same thing, only slower and quieter. Absolutely, which is one of their specialties. But yeah, it's just a wonderful thing to see. I mean, not just a trade union win. It's it's so much bigger than that. It's a pure people power. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that, that, that that's one of the things I, I love. Keep learning when you're in this in the trade union movement. And and I've got to say, Millinch has said it a few times, but I think we don't really focus on it. Is that trade unions are the fucking community. We are the people. We are the workers. We are the people that are, going, are taking our kids to school. We are the people who have got partners who are a nurse and all the rest of it. We are the community. It shouldn't be. It, often it gets seen as an aside that are the, you know they're the they're the troublemakers that just want more money and all the rest of it. But th- this ticket office thing just demonstrated that you know that it wasn't pro RMT. None of that was pro RMT. People, well, a, a small element was pro RMT signing these petitions. But but actually, what it was was people saying, "No, fuck off. That's the. That, I don't want that." 
and so the trade union were aligned with the community issue, and that's what we've got to do everywhere. Yeah, completely. And I'm just going to say, for whatever it's worth, I've I had first-hand experience this the other week, so I was I'm going to struggle to remember the station I was at right now. Oh no, it was uh, I remember now. I went to to Lee over in that part of South London, sort of like sort of Lewisham area, I think, isn't it? Mm. I better get that right, otherwise everything I've just said about my love of London is going to make me look like it's total phony. Well, it's, um, it's oh, yeah, I was going London. down there to yeah, going down there to see um. Uh, the Museum of Neoliberalism before it shuts down and has to move someplace else. Shout out to Darren Cullen from Spelling Mistakes Cost Lives. You're very welcome on the show sometime. Please, in fact, please check your emails because I've invited you on the show. But um, we went there and uh, there was, you know, was a fellow on the station who was uh, blind, you know, couldn't be able to see properly. And he said, you know, he just randomly said, excuse me, could you help me? I need to, and he actually needs to get to Charing Cross, you know. So we took him to the other side of the station, the other platform, I should say. And sure enough, there was nobody around. There's nobody in the ticket office or whatever because they, they, they hadn't staffed it that day. So we pressed a little button on the. So for those of you who know London, I'm sure there's equivalents all over the world. There's like this big white box with a couple of buttons, like a blue and a green button, and you press one to talk to somebody. It's like a, a main area. And they go, hi, yeah. I said, yeah, hi, there's a fella here who really, really needs some help. He needs some advice on getting to uh, Maida Vale he was heading to. And in case you're wondering, by the way, folks, go to Charing Cross and change that. Okay. We needed that help. And, you know, the guy was like, oh, there should be somebody on the station. I was like, yes, there should be. Anyway, do you think you could come down and help this guy? (laughs) We went back and forth for a while. I was like, what the fuck is this conversation? There's no one here. Come and help the guy. And, you know, just imagine that. You're talking about someone who's got to, it's, it's tough enough going out in the world with challenges to your senses. And just imagine, I don't know what time this guy needed to be at Maida Vale, but, you know, he had to probably had a couple of hours to make sure he's actually able to get there, find the right train, help folks out. And of course, when everyone who who should be there is there, there's no debate, there's no discussion. It's great. They just point him in the right direction, get him on the train, away you go. It's a beautiful thing to see. And if it means that somebody at the higher level of this company who none of us have ever heard of, who none of us can, for the life of us, and more importantly, none of them for the life of them, with a gun to their head, could actually describe to you what job they do, and yet somehow they take a massive paycheck out of the company you work for. You've got to look at that and just go, right, so you're the reason why we haven't got somebody sitting on a station helping someone who's blind. Fucking disgraceful, frankly. There wasn't even a nod to say, well, fares will be cheaper because there's less people to pay. Didn't even bother with that. <laughs> fares are going up. Yeah, the only direction they go in. Don't think trade unions are on their own. Uh, we are the community. And let's make sure that that counts for something. Could not agree with you more. Okay, so those are the two major trade union wins that you've had uh, recently. Society has helped trade union with, in the last few months, is the uh, the programme of Mr Bates versus the post office and the uh, miners, uh, BBC drama. So. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that we, me and Dave did a whole show about Mr. Bates versus the post office. And what we were talking about is, just to recap it, if any of you folks want to listen to it, I think it's like episode 258 or 259 or something. Check it out later. Might even drop it in the description. Anyway, this is not an unknown thing in the the, the, the facts of the matter. You know, there was panorama programs about this. There was a campaign that ran for the better part 20 years, over, as, you know, possibly over 20 years, beg your pardon. And yet somehow or another... On New Year's Day 2024, sometime between 9 and 10 p.m., 
And I'm being that exact because I find it fascinating. It's very, it's very rare to actually pinpoint the exact moment that something enters cultural consciousness in a country or, or a, a, a city or wherever else you want to talk about it. But you can actually do it in this case because I was bumming around on Twitter when that was happening, doing nothing. And uh, all of a sudden, Mr. Bates' post office scandal, you know, hashtag just kept trending and trending and trending. I was kind of like, oh, wow, what's, what's happening? Hats off to Toby Jones and Julie Hesman Hirsch, among others, who have basically taken this 20-year scandal, a, a, a subject of which, if you spoke to me for a long enough period of time, at some point you would have heard me use the words, this is something that should be far more of a national scandal than it actually is. And suddenly it became one. And the power of drama, I don't know, maybe it's just something about, you know, the, the, that's what actors do, that's what writers do. That is their, to some degree, indefinable, in my opinion. Well, for someone like me, it is. I'm sure there's people out there who can explain culture better than I can. But uh, indefinable strength and, and, uh, and power is to take those stories, those real-life stories, those stories of people being framed and imprisoned, those stories of having their, their life and livelihood destroyed, uh, having you know, situations with their, with their family where they were estranged from their own family. For someone actually coming out and saying, I actually would have killed myself over this, but I was pregnant at the time, so I kept myself alive for the child. Just think about that for a moment, mm-hmm. everyone. Just, just let that sink in because it really is just breathtaking. All of that from a company that is still effectively protecting the people who made the decisions to sign off on this, who instructed their HR representatives to tell every single person that phoned, this is just a problem you're having, no one else has phoned us about it. Who instructed people to say, the more of these that end up in convictions, the bigger a bonus you will get. I know that this this is a term that can have certain cultural implications, so I obviously don't mean it in that sense, but I'm going to use it anyway. The people who run post office under this period of time are just inhumane savages absolute psychopaths so yes mr bates versus post office and you know what? i haven't even watched it yet that's just what i gathered no, from, I from everything that was yeah. going on around that and the minus one because i know it's going to annoy me um yeah. and i suppose that's the point of it but but what it does is it uh, and it's funny what, what you've just explained there i mean why when it's on the tv does it matter more but i think it's a way of it's similar to what I, I think I spoke to you about it before, where um, I will walk into a mess room and try and explain to people trade unions and, and this and that and the other. I'm, I'm 45, I'm not a dinosaur, but a 25-year-old would look at me like a dinosaur, especially in the trade union context. So I've always thought a podcast is a good idea because they choose to listen to that. Uh, people have chosen to switch on the TV and chosen to to digest what, what these people are trying to portray. And I think there's a big difference. And I think it's something that we need to delve into if we are serious about educating uh, people about the struggles in the past and how they will mirror the struggles in the future. I agree. I agree entirely. Mm. And again, it's to, it's to do with, there's an issue here for access, Right. And it's one of the things that always annoys me. I mean, God, you know, where do I even start this conversation? I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, but for want of a better term, the kind of cultural gatekeeping that we, that we participate in to sort of say, well, this is something that's going to interest you. This is something that isn't. This is, uh, oh, you don't want anything to do with this. You know, there, there's whoever it is that decides uh, why it is that we haven't had a, a single sort of TV show comedy or, or a long-running series soap opera but it's had like a pro-trade union character in it for uh, since early Brookside I think maybe uh, that yeah. kind of thing yeah. and um, 
I find so often that when you expose people to culture they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise, because somebody somewhere doesn't think it's going to make them any money, and, and hopefully it's not, you have no idea what people are actually into. You have no idea what people are, are, are interested in until you show it to them. You know, even example, someone I know, um, sort of family friend really, who's, who's not exactly on the same level I am. He's very, very right wing in a lot of ways. But also, I mean, he, he's he's kind of moderately pro-trade unionist because he sees it from just a logical perspective. You know, why else mm. would the working people not actually want to do their best, you know, gain the best opportunities they can? I've got him into quite a bit of pro Cuban revolution, Soviet cinema, you know, because those films are on YouTube really? and whatever else you think of the politics doesn't matter. I mean, look, all films are political blimey. You know, Top Gun is a recruiting film for, <laughs> for the, uh, for the U S army as many as fat, all the Avengers films are recruiting films for the U S armed forces. Uh, but people still watch them, enjoy them. Check out, so like, check out I am Cuba. The camera work alone in that film is staggering. Just, just mm-hmm. look at it. It's, it's a thing of absolute beauty. And the cranes are flying, which uh, is also by the same director. You know, but just as an example, when you expose people to the areas where they can find, they'll make up their own mind about what they really like. And I'm afraid you don't get that when you are stuck in the uh, cultural quagmire of Heart FM trying to tell you that there's been no decent music released since 1983 mm. or wherever it is, 1978 probably in their case. And everything was brilliant in the past. I, mean, I remember having an argument with someone once about that. Well, don't, don't you think things were better in the old days? And I said, well, how the fuck do you know? You're 10 years younger than me. You weren't there. Talk <laughs> 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 to me about the 80s. You weren't there. But, but again, I, it's that whole thing of going back to what we were saying earlier about knowing about your history and this, that, and the other. That is just an excuse to not do what you're supposed to be doing now. Maybe it was better. Well, we'll make this better then. <laughs> Exactly. I just look back there anyway, and go home. Oh. No, it wasn't better, mate. You were better because you were younger, and that's that's exactly <laughs> what it's all about. I listen. I actually i sh- i share that feeling sometimes. You know, I do. I understand this. I'm, I'm reaching out to people when I say this now. I don't really like talking about myself on this show too much. Although I think you've probably, you know, if anyone could be bothered to, you've put the jigsaw pieces together by now. But the uh, if you if you haven't, please go and listen to the other 260 plus shows that we've made in this program. <laughs> mainly because it will be absolute torture for you to do so. I, th- I think about, uh, yeah, I have these occasions when, you know, even I, you know, look, going, oh, I, mean, I don't, I never ever look at the past and go, wasn't it great? Cause I know it wasn't. That's one of the, the, the benefits of being, um, massively depressive and, and, and lacking in self worth is that you don't actually immune to the disease of nostalgia. And, uh, but you do look back sometimes and you just go, well, you know, I'm 40 something now. And yeah, I, I do kind of miss being 20 something, uh, in a way. I miss that I had more energy. Uh, I miss, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. I miss that certain things didn't, didn't ache in those days. I miss, uh, I miss sort of, uh, Yoga brother, yoga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss tearing up the, and I was never much for one for going out, but I've, I love music. I love live music. And, uh, I used to go to a lot, I still do go to a lot of gigs actually. I'd rather, you know, once I stopped going to gigs, I really am dead. But uh, I used to go to, well, in 2004, I think I went to over 30, you know, uh, and you just used to tear it up and, and, uh, the mo- what can I say about the mosh pit folks, except I can understand from the outside that maybe it looks a little silly, but get in one and tell me, come out of there and tell me you feel stupid. If you honestly still do, if you feel silly or whatever, fine, then don't do it again. But once you're, once you've been in the experience of that, um, there's, there's nothing quite like it. If nothing else, for tension release, you know? It's, uh, appreciate it, mate. But listen, you say yoga, I say mosh pit. So, you know, it's, it works for me better. 
I don't know if it gets a stretch in. <laughs> Although saying that, I do, you know, do have a little stretch before we start. Oh, good. Is, yeah, is so, that, sorry, sorry. Is that a joint, is that a joint uh, warm-up session or...? Kind of, yeah. Most people uh, get into it. Sometimes someone's, <laughs> someone says, what are you doing? I say, I'm stretching, mate. What the fuck do you think I'm doing? You, you do know I was about to come on stage, don't you? <laughs> I think if you don't, I suggest you stand five rows back. As I said, I, I do... You know, I'm reaching out to the people I'm criticising now or, or the mindset I'm criticising. I, I do realise that, but don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. It's another trick. I'll, I'll do a show about this one day. I was going to, provisionally, I was going to call it um, cultural hegemony, Abba is fash. But yeah, it, it is exactly that. It's, don't, don't be sold this idea that there is no future. Because I, I do, I feel so strongly about this. It communicates, it's not just the fact that I don't like that music, I don't like that that culture, I don't like these endless fucking television programs looking back to back in the day, further mm-hmm. back to further back to back in the, the other day, or people still farting on about 40 tales or whatever. It's it's that it teaches you the idea that there's no future. I don't, I don't yeah, mean, yeah, I mean in a stupid, glorious Sex Pistols way. I mean in a, in a in a genuine way. It teaches you the idea that nothing can be. You know, in a country that's on the downturn, as we talked about earlier on, like this one is, in a country that has no economic base to it whatsoever, I think it's quite dangerous to constantly communicate to people. And I think most younger people are immune to this because they're living the harsh end of this, as we talked about already this this evening, which is uh, they're they're working and not getting paid for it. They're struggling mm-hmm. to keep a roof over their head. They're seeing just insane levels of people sleeping in the streets in this country now, insecure housing, et cetera, ju- just eye-watering levels. Um, and I think that, so they're, to a degree, they're immune to it, except when they start talking to me about the 90s, in which case I say the 90s was horrible and don't ever tell me otherwise. I, I think overall, though, it, it is a dangerous ideal to put out there to say everything was was, you know, better in the old days, a period you weren't even alive in, nothing's ever going to get good. Nothing's ever going to be worthwhile again. You combine that with our politics of hopelessness, which is presented to us by both main parties right now. And don't don't bring the Liberal Democrats into it because we saw what happened last time you did. But also it's a waste of time because they've got nothing to say. So, you know, you, you see this and it's like this, this neoliberal death drive that we're locked into. And that's where nostalgia comes from, either consciously or unconsciously. The last thing you want as someone running a load of battery chickens is for the battery chickens to know how beautiful it is the other outside of that shed that they're kept in. You know, and that's, that, that speaks to exactly what you just been saying. So I've, I've no doubt they're, they're being shown uh, reruns of 40 Towers in that battery shed for the poor yeah. chickens. Oh, isn't it funny when he does the German walk? Fuck off. It's, it's a fascinating subject to me because this is, this is why I've taken so long to come around to it because... Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, it's a combination of me having a laugh about it, but also I'm, you know, I'm deathly serious about this. Mm. Deathly mm. serious about just this this doom culture is what I would call it. It's just downward spiral of self absorbed hatred of everything around you that you just have to. It, it is it's the culture of people who who are stuck in so much misery that they don't want to improve. They don't believe the world can be improved. You know, I used mm. to think like the biggest uh, the biggest saddest nihilists are that you know knuckle-dragging 15-year-old who writes bad poetry and dresses in black all the time. No, that's not a nihilist. The, the middle-aged, middle-class, middle-of-the-road of Great Britain are the biggest nihilists I've ever seen in my life because they genuinely do not believe in hope. They don't believe there's a better tomorrow. And, and, there's, and, no cre- please, and there's no creativity to it. So it's going to stay there until that spark of creativity, that spark of imagination. And, and where are they going to get that spark from? 
And there's no, and again, culture matters in this way because of course there's no creativity because, and we know how much culture matters because look how much effort they put into it. Exactly. Look how much effort the right, the right have the economic power of this country and the right have the political power, the political hegemony, what can be done, what can't be done. But they are so angry that they're crap at culture. And everybody knows they're crap at culture and they get so wound up by it. And they've gone absolute hell for leather to actively shut the working class out of culture. Mm. You know, I mean, it is it is a little bit reductive, but for the sake of me giving you a, a, a term that you can begin with and work backwards here, uh, if you like, it's the reason that this country's music scene is, is full of bands like Mumford and Sons and not bands like Gang of Four. Mm. It literally, because, and I, I use that, that example, as I say, I'm using the word literally in, in its literal sense, not its figurative, because go check out how Gang of Four formed, you know, like student grants, dole money, mm. uh, you know, making one of the best albums and, and more, because they are more than just that one debut album that this uh, country's music scene has ever seen. Uh, just one example, just one example, you know, it really is that. And, you know, this, that, that's that incredibly fertile, worthwhile, even if you don't like the music, you've got to say that, you know, Britain was a major player on the, on the, the musical stage worldwide when they were pushing out bands like Wire, Gang of Four, Public Enemies Limited, Joy Division, uh, even if you don't like those bands. But people, people, if you, if you want to be like kind of a, a cultural, well, like patriot for one for better, I don't know why you would. I, I don't actually think patriotism works with the example I'm using, but for argument's sake, you should be more kind of more supportive of that kind of fertile creativity because the world recognised there was something meaningful happening here. People were moving here, you know, from America or whatever to be a part of the music scene. There's, there's many a musician, you know, you can go and look up who in the in the 70s were and like an American musician in a long running band who were spending time in Britain at the time. He said, yeah, it was the best music scene. That's where you went. It was, it was so fertile for the, um, I should have said mm -hmm. the fall too. I forgot the fall. And then there's, I mean, uh, the other thing, I don't want to go off down a particularly large rabbit hole here, but again, part of that cultural, cultural authoritarianism, shall we say, I might end up calling it cultural fascism down the road because I do think it, but I don't want to, until I've got a, uh, a good textbook definition of what I mean by that, until I've worked it all out, I'll, I'll, change that but you know the kind of sneering nose in the air you get whenever you put anything heavy on right mm. and again if you even want to make a kind of not just cultural but even an economic argument why do you never see you know why does a mercury prize and jules holland's tv program never carry bands like bring me the horizon because they're not a band i necessarily like one of my nephews is a big fan that's okay i don't have to like them the fact is they're a successful british band and they've raked in a hell of a lot of money to this country's economy, as has that genre of music from Black Sabbath onwards, if not mm. earlier. You know, you go around the world, it's, it's well known. The, those bands tour, they sell out. And uh, they, if you manufacture their, their, their records, et cetera, in this country, et cetera, you're doing something very productive for the British economy because they sell like hotcakes. And yet they're completely disrespected because some middle-class, snooty, heart FM listeners decided that that kind of music is, is noise. By the way, some music is noise, and I like it that way. I'm a big fan of noise. Okay, I like, I like wolf eyes and yellow swans. So yeah, God, this, is, this conversation has gone way into the, into the sticks. Love it, love it. <laughs> anyway, please come back in if you, if you have anything to say. <laughs> Well, I've got to say, uh, uh, my music is taste is stuck in 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 an era, but it's not because nothing's better or anything like that. I I, I like a genre that cheese me up a little bit, you know what I mean? And uh, I use Iron Maiden, and, and I've I've recently got into a load of um, Galician kind of punk 
you know, more more mainstream rock. Uh, I was lucky enough last summer to see a band that I've been listening to for years, uh, Herederos da Cruz. They're like the most famous Galician rock band. Um, and I saw them for free at a festival, you know. It's just very typical of, of that part of the world where they just rock up. The uh, local association, cultural association, pays for big bands to turn up. Everyone gets together, talk about a local area, put a big band on, have a drink, and have some food and happy days. Yeah, when I was over there, I think we're sort of 2018, I'm going to say, about that time, we were watching. Well, firstly, my, my partner, when she was over there at one point, found, uh, she came home and she said, I saw this really interesting TV programme. Uh, which had like a kind of genuine mix of music on it. And she said, uh, there's this lady named um, Mercedes Peron. You, you've got to check her out. You're going to love her. I went, okay, fine. So I did. And she was right. I absolutely love Mercedes Peron. And Mercedes, if you're listening, please come to Britain and do a gig. I want to see you. Come to London. I want to see you. Go. But also when I was there, I saw this program that was, and how can I kind of best describe it? But it, it was almost like Galicia's Got Talent or something, but it wasn't anywhere near as shit as that sounds because you had a, a genuine uh, mix of musical artists and some of them very kind of folky and some of them were, um, you know, more sort of, I don't know, young pop R&B leaning direction, but it was all mixed together and no one was saying these, this can't be mixed together and no one was saying this is more popular than that. Basically, this is a thing that I, as a, as a just informed faced creature like Simon Cowell can make even more money out of, even though I don't need it. So if mm -hmm. I can't make money out of it, it doesn't have a right to exist because that's the kind of ego you're dealing with. Now. Uh, as, as a great Amber Frost once said on, uh, on our Chapo Trap House, she quite rightly called this out to say, you know, the problem with the, the fellas that did things like the Wolf of Wall Street is they thought they were Kings. The problem we're dealing with, with the people we have today, the Bezos and the Simon Cowell, anyone else is they think they're gods. Mm. they've taken it up a level and yeah, it's yeah. very, very frightening. So yeah, the idea of not only should this culture, this culture shouldn't even exist, not only because I can't make any money out of it, but because I just don't like it and no one should have anything in the world that I don't like. I genuinely think that is the way the musks and the cows and the people like that of the world think. And they yeah, are, yeah. call them out for what they are. They are dangerous psychopaths and we need to put very, very serious clamps upon power that they control, that, that they wield because it's dangerous for all of us. So As an great. example... Elon Musk has been going down to Bolivia, I, I believe, uh, my mother's country, because they're full of lithium. So in the same way that they, these people think they're gods, he's going to go down there and think, right, okay, well, I'll, I'll do something with this uh, country, uh, make it politically unstable, and then put in someone who is affable to me, uh, chosen by me, and then I can have all the resources I want. I mean, if that ain't godlike, I don't know what is, you know what I mean? Do you remember the last Bolivian coup and he actually, someone talked to him about it because they already knew that uh, Tesla were, were messing with the lithium and he replied, we'll coup whoever we like. That was, If there wasn't a time before, that was the day when I decided Elon Musk is someone who must be relieved of power in every possible form by any means necessary. Well, hopefully okay. he gets on that first uh, shuttle and then it never comes back. Couldn't agree. I, and, and he could well take quite a few of them with him. It might be like another one of them, uh, that, sub, that, um, that submarine. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. everyone, everyone working class, well, I think everyone working class, I, I certainly had a chuckle. It's, it's, not, it's not a nice thing to say, but ultimately, you're billionaires choosing to do something daft. You know, I'm not going to lose any sleep over you. You know what I mean? I'll lose sleep over people in fucking Palestine. I won't lose sleep over cunts that are dying in the bottom of a fucking sea because they just wanted to see what it's like and bring their 15-year-old kid with them. I mean, that person's behaviour, like you say, bringing their kid with them, 
Spectre. We wouldn't have any compunction about calling this out if this was something that a poor person had done, some, some level of stupidity that a poor yeah. person had done. Uh, same thing you had with the McCann's. That was irresponsible because, no matter, again, the problem with having that much money is it insulates you from reality. And you may mm. have very well had a lot of money, but what you didn't have is a lot of knowledge about what you were doing. And you can turn, by the way, you can turn to a fellow member of the rich elite if you want to. You can turn to the film director uh, and explorer James Cameron who is well known for knowing everything. Because when he was studying, you know, to make his film Titanic, he became quite obsessed with, with the Titanic. And he's, but he, what he did is he kind of did it the right way, which is I have to learn everything about uh, submergence and ships and how these things work and how they don't. And sure enough, he did. And then they, they actually talked. And again, you know, what you're saying, I'm sure people will pick up on it and say that it's, you know, you know typical type of the of, of the nasty aspects of the left or whatever. Cameron said the same thing on TV when they interviewed him. He just said, yeah, this, but these, these people had no business being down there because they didn't know what they were doing. Okay, so again, I'm not pissing on the dead. I'm just pointing out, it would probably get lost in the sea if I did. But I mean, the fact of the matter is they didn't know what they were doing. They were ill-experienced and I'm absolutely sure that the arrogance of their class position is what led them to be there in the first place. Mm, and educated man it doesn't matter just don't I've got to the stage in life where I won't even get on a skateboard I don't think my balance is well enough <laughs> well, this is this is it you know what I mean know your limits because um, you know if you, if, you, if you look at it right you, you know you've got that that happened you've got the people that go up to Everest who are doing it on a gap year the, the frustrating thing for me is you have that ability to do whatever you want with that money. You have that ability to improve the world and leave your name embossed somewhere that said this person really made a difference. And instead, you choose to get in a tin can and go under the sea or get a poor Sherpa to take you all the way up to Everest. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what it is. So, you know, if people want to take it the wrong way, take it the wrong way. I couldn't give a flying fuck, frankly. And also, people talk about this as being, well, you know, these, these people are explorers. No, they're not. They're going somewhere where everyone else has been already. Or yeah. plenty of other people have been already. There's nothing there to explore no, in Titanic. Yeah, there, it's been done. There's no new peak at Everest. It is just no. the peak. But I don't know. I mean it. I, I'm not, you know, I'm uh, sneered. Call this whatever you want to. Call me. By the way, I never said I was a member of the nice left. I'm nothing of the kind. I'm a vicious bastard. Honestly, I mean, it's, it's, these people scare. They're dangerous. They're deeply, deeply dangerous. Again, it's coming back to the cultural discussion we were just kind of having. Pay attention to the content of what me and Carlos are discussing here. Do not get waylaid by whether or not we are nice or nasty, whether or not we've said something, you know, which is controversial, which, by the way, I thought you were supposed to do in this country in order to gain some aspect of the attention economy. Uh, maybe when I put this out, you know, all the rage will start trending because uh, lots of right-wingers with, with flags in their, in their bios will start screaming about what horrible people we are. Yeah, good, okay. Listen, we could do with the listeners, so I appreciate it. Push me to all of your uh, your far right friends. I'd love to them to listen to this show. They might learn something actually. They might realise how defeatist and self hating their ideology is, and realise they're better off with the likes of us. God, what do we add to that? You got nothing left you want to talk about? <laughs> Just very quickly, uh, uh, Galicia. So I don't know if you you're aware they they went to the polls last Sunday. Yeah, they they had a bit of a Jeremy Corbyn moment, if you would you, would you believe? Um, the Galicia National Party, which is kind of the de facto hard left got the closest they've ever been to taking power back over over the Tories. Um, and they, they performed really, really well. They just come short at the end. But um, I, I have a little podcast in Galician and we had a guy on who, in actual fact, he was the one who kind of gave me the idea of starting a podcast. He had a podcast over here. Uh, it was him and his mate 
who were both working in uh, um, newspapers over here, and they did a, a, a podcast in Galician from London called De Congotas Tea with Drops, right? In mm. in, a, in a in a bit of a play on words that when we have coffee at the end of a meal in Galicia, you always put alcohol in, it and we call them drops. So to make it more British, he put tea instead of coffee. So it works. Anyway, he came on and he explained the situation and he was very, very nervous. He, he came on on the Saturday night and, and they were going to the polls on Sunday. You know, unfortunately they didn't make it, but I think um, unlike the Corbyn moment, because it was party versus party rather than an infighting in a party, I think that the, the national Galician bloc will just go from strength to strength. And I think in four years' time, if not sooner, they will be a very, very, very credible potential leader of Galicia and their number one rule is to uh, pure independence from Spain so <laughs> happy days for me always worth looking into these these things one of the other reasons why I'm so uh, dismissive of nationalism is because in so many of its forms it's really not been around for a very long time uh, off the top of my head and uh, geography is not my strong point but if you look at uh, Britain if you look at Germany Spain maybe to some degree France, Austria, countries like that, they are made up of a number of different folks, different regions, different uh, uh, areas, and sometimes are countries that don't even look like they used to look when they were a previous country, if that makes sense. Um, and it's interesting to me how everyone was in favour of breaking up the Soviet Union, but they're not interested in breaking up countries beyond that. No, no, I mean, I, I'm very, very mixed about this. I, do your homework. So I'm not necessarily going to come out and immediately say, uh, if this, these people want to cede, then they should be able to. Uh, well, broadly speaking, if the majority of people wish to be independent, I think you should grant that. It might not always be the smartest move. It might not be the smartest move economically. There might be a period of stagnation or suffering of some description that they go through. But you know what? That's up to the to the folks in mm. in that area. It's up to the, them. If they want to take that chance, whether they're Scotland or, or Catalan, then uh, I think we need to respect that. If there's a, a lack of sabotage from outside, any of those problems are going to be substantially less. But uh, yeah, I mean, I can understand. And I, again, I, I can understand a certain degree of trepidation. I'm not a big fan of risk myself. Mm. So if some people look at it and go, oh, I think, you know, Spain is better than United. Okay, well, I'm not immediately going to say that that's, that's the wrong viewpoint. But you need to listen to the people in different regions. You need to understand how they feel. You need to understand what it is that they want, what they need to make their lives better. And uh, don't be dismissive of it just for the sake of, of having a united block of something. I, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Shout out to Galicia, basically. Can I do a sh- Good evening, Galicia. Can I, can, I, can I do a whole region? Don't think I'm that well known. You'll upset the Asturians now. <laughs> oh, yes. Don't get yeah. me started on the Hispanics. Because it's been a great show. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we covered yeah. a lot of ground. Please listen to all of it, not just the bits that you think you can make uh, content out of us being nasty. Uh, <laughs> although, listen to that too. And again, put the nasty content all around social media because it gets me listeners. So, appreciate your time. So, Carlos Barros, solidarity as ever, mate. Welcome to uh, Thank you. Sorry, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. and, thanks again uh, for the invite. Always have a good time here. And onward, onward to bigger, better and greater trade union victories. Because as you've pointed out so very beautifully, and I think this is going to be the the, the tagline of the show, uh, trade unions are community. Couldn't agree more. All the Rage with John Bowd. <laughs> On www.tracksfm.org.